I'd like for you to turn to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's the epistle and not the gospel. So it's over near the end of the New Testament. And I'm reading beginning verse 3 through verse 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There is a phrase in this passage, this text, that is repeated and is implied a second time. He who says... The one who says, the one who says. Obviously, John is talking about a religious professor, one who is professing a religious experience. We would call, we would say that he's talking about somebody who is giving their testimony. That's not enough for John. It's not enough to him that somebody would profess a religious experience. Because the Word of God is clear at this point that there must be a consistency between what one does and what one says. And so John says, in essence, you say this, but we're going to put that to a test. If it doesn't pass the test, you're a liar, plain and simple. That's pretty heavy language. One time I was doing a study in 1 John when I, a few years ago, and I mentioned that John argues like a woman. Might add that uh, that bought me some grief. <laughs> but, but it's true, you know. You know how a man argues. A man's rational and logical. You know how it is, guys. I mean, you know, you get the facts and you get the data and you get all the information. And, 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 they're, and, and we're logical and, 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 uh, and analytical and... Uh, when we get to the bottom line, then we make a decision. A woman's not like that. A woman says, well, this is the way it is. And you say, well, how do you know? He says, I don't know. I just know. You, know. Well, you say, well, i got to have a little more proof than that. She says, well, you know, I don't know how I know. I, I just know it's true. The sad part about it is that most of the time they're right. A woman kind of has a kind of a built-in radar detector, I think, that it, you know, it just kind of picks up when something's not the truth, not valid, doesn't line up. And lights go on, you know, and, and, and alarms go off, and they just kind of know that this is not, you know, right. Now, at the first part of this century, they, folks used to shout in church. You probably, some of you may be old enough to remember when... Folks had come together in revival meetings and they'd shout, you know, in the service. I was talking to a lady not long ago who said that, that her grandmother used to shout at church. 
One Sunday morning, she was bringing a friend to church from another denomination, and she was praying, oh Lord, don't let my grandmother shout today. I mean, it's embarrassing to her. So when free people would shout in church, they'd have a shouting committee. I've never really figured out who got put on those shouting committees, but they had a shouting committee, and when somebody would shout, they'd take their names. And the next day, they'd go around town to see if they paid their bills, you know, if they went to barn dances or not, if they went to church. They might come back to church that night and say, now you're not allowed to shout tonight because you owe a bill down at the general store you hadn't paid a couple of weeks. Well, John is saying, in essence, he's kind of a one-man shouting committee. And he said, now we're going to put your testimony to the test, and if it doesn't pass the test, then you're a liar. That's plain simple. Now, there are three testimonies in this passage and three tests that are given. Number one is, the, the, the first testimony is, I know him. Now, that is basic to Christianity. As, as a matter of fact, coming to know the Lord is what it means to be a Christian, to be saved. So that when somebody is saved, we talk about they came to know the Lord. But knowledge of God is not unique to Christianity. As a matter of fact, it was claimed by even the pagan religions. Gnosticism, which was the greatest heresy in the first century that riddled the church, was a philosophy based upon superior knowledge. That's where it got its name. Gnosis is the Greek word for know. So that these Gnostics claimed a superior knowledge. It was kind of like we had these mystical experiences and these direct visions from the divine. For others, knowing God was a kind of an esoteric experience that, was, that communicated salvation to those who were initiated into the knowledge, of club, the knowledge club, as it were. It was purely a religious attainment so that when one boasted of knowing God and these pagan religions, he was talking about, I've ascended the stairway until I've, I've come to this superior grasp and knowledge of God. Even the Jews claimed the knowledge of God. And the Jew talked about this divine revelation that came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so John says, okay, you claim to know the Lord. We're going to put that testimony to the test. And this is the test. Do you keep His commandments? Now, it's not enough to say, I know the Lord, John says. The test is, do you keep His commandments? If you don't keep His commandments, you don't know the Lord. So that the test of knowing the Lord, knowledge of God, was obedience to His commandments and a recognition of the life God expects us to live. And so Hosea, when he complained that there was no knowledge of God in the land, he followed it up like this by saying, there is lying and stealing and cheating and committing adultery and murder how can you say, I know the Lord, if you don't keep His commandments? Now the question that some of you might ask is this. Does that mean that if I break one of the Ten Commandments, that means that I'm not a Christian? That's not what he's talking about at all. The word there, keep, is a word that means to keep your eye upon. Keep your eye on. In the nautical world, a sailor would steer his vessel keeping his eye on the stars. 
Now there'd be times when the wind would drift that vessel away and you'd get it off course, he'd bring it back and line with the stars. And there would be times when the clouds would come in and obstruct, obstruct the view of the stars, but he'd keep his eye peeled on the heavens and when the star reappeared, he'd adjust his vessel in line with a star. It's like a man driving down the highway with a road map on the front seat. Now there'll be times when you and I will drift from God the songwriter was talking about me when he said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're all prone to wander from God. And we're all bent toward backsliding. But if you really know the Lord, you line your life up with His commands and you bring your life in line with His commands. If not, He says, your profession is a lie. Now the second testimony is this. We are, in verse 5, they testified, we are in Him. Now that term there is superior to knowing Him. It's more than that. It's, it's really a reference to a, an intimate relationship with the Lord, an intimate experience with God. It's what Paul was talking about when he said, for me to live is Christ. I live my life within the sphere of Jesus. He's the atmosphere of my life. He's the air that I breathe. In the language of that great uh, youth musical a few years ago called Celebrate Life. They, he put it like this. Burl Red put it like this. He's the sea I swim in. He's the grass I run through. He's the, I live my life within the boundaries of His existence. I move about in the sphere of Jesus. What a picture. And it's more than just claiming I know the Lord. It's the idea that, that I'm in this I, I'm, I'm moving my life about in the, within the boundaries of Jesus Himself. Now, so John says, well, that's your testimony? All right, we'll put it to the test. If you are in Him, you keep His Word. You keep His Word. Now, there's a difference between keeping His commandments and keeping His Word. Here's the difference. One has to do with obedience and will. The other has to do with desire to please. And there's an example of what I'm talking about in chapter 3, verse 22. Would you look at it? He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, he's talking about two different things there. Pleasing, doing the things that are pleasing in His sight are, is not, He's not referring to keeping His commandments. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about keeping His commandments and He's talking about doing the things that are pleasing in His sight. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. The mother comes to Johnny and she's fixing to leave and she says, Johnny, now I've got some chores for you to do today. I'm going to be gone about three or three hours and I want you to do this. I want you to clean your room. I want you to carry out the garbage and, and, and you know, a few other things. She has a little list and she leaves. Four or five hours later, she comes back and she says, Johnny, did you keep my commandments? Did you do what I told you to do? He says, oh, yes. 
He said, look here, he said, I, I cleaned my room. She goes in, looks it over, checks it all. Yeah, he did. So, carry out the garbage, looks in the, yeah, the garbage, check off, check that. Everything's just like she told him. Then he says, well, mother, I knew that, that you would want me, that you would be pleased if I washed the dishes. Fellas, ladies, are you down here? You listening here? I wanted, to, I wanted just to make you happy, so I washed the dishes. And she's so excited, and she gives old Johnny a hug. Now, which makes her the happier? That he did what she told him to do? Or that he went beyond that to do what made her happy and pleased? Well, you know the answer to that. Now, if you are in him... It's more than just doing what is expected of you. You have this desire to do what thrills Him and pleases Him and gives Him joy. There are three reasons why we obey. We obey because we have to, because we need to, or because we want to. A slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't, he dies. An employee obeys because he needs to. He, has, he, has, he needs to keep his job. He has to feed his family. But a person who is in Christ obeys because he wants to. And the greatest joy in his life is to bring him joy. Now, I want you to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Everybody needs to turn to that. Don't take my word for it. Just turn to chapter 17. And I'm going to begin reading verse 6. Found it yet? Luke is a gospel. Third. Matthew 1. And the Lord said, verse 6, If you had faith like a mustard seed... You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. But which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Which one of you, he said, would say to a slave, sit down here, I got supper fixed for you? Nobody. He said, but you'll say this, you'll say, prepare me something, something for me to eat. Now that you've been working in a field, get busy with supper. Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Reminds me of when I was a kid growing up, we'd have the preachers at the house. After they got through eating, we could eat. And so he'd say, now you slaves, after you eat, after I eat, then you can eat. Now look at this next verse. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying there is no honor and reward in doing what you ought to do. Now, I'm the world's worst at congratulating people for coming to church. I'll say to them, man, sure glad you came tonight. Thanks for coming. 
I mean, Sunday night, you came to Sunday. Wow, you know, congratulations. Thanks for coming. Listen, that's what we ought to do. And if a person comes to visitation on Monday night, go visit on Monday night, we put their name on a, quote, honor roll. We publicize it. That's what we ought to do. You want to know how to develop a kind of faith that moves mountains? You want to know how, what kind of a faith that, that enables you to live for God in peace and joy? You begin to, you go beyond what you should do and you begin to do what pleases Him. And you watch this. The farther we get away, the, let me say it this way, the closer you get to God, and pleasing Him, the farther you get away from the legalistic demands of religion. Alright? Third testimony. The third testimony is we abide in Him. Now that's the height of it. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the ultimate. It's the picture of one who is at home in the Lord. It's a strong word. It means to be permanently lodged. It's the idea of someone who has made a total commitment of his life to Christ and he lives on the basis of faith. And he never makes a decision except by prayer. And he lives in the, what we call the faith rest life so that he, he just trusts God daily for every provision. He's kind of like George Mueller. He just expects God to take care of him. Do you know anybody like that? They're rare indeed. So here is this person who's boasting of this relationship. I'm just living my life to totally dependent upon God, resting in Him. Well, John says, let's put that to the test. If that's so, then you ought to walk as He walked. Those are heavy words. They need some, we need to spend a little time with them. The word ought there is a word that means to be in debt. It means the, the necess, the, a necessity that's been imposed so that one is bound by duty. The term just as is a term that means in a way that is previously illustrated or described. The word walk is peripateo and it means manner of life and it's a present infinitive and all of it together means this that if you indeed are abiding in Christ, the manner of your life is a moment-by-moment moment reflection of Jesus. I need to say that again. If you are indeed abiding in Christ, then your life reflects Jesus in every habit, in every attitude, in every action, moment upon moment. That's, that's found everywhere in Scripture. Watch this. The Scripture says that we are to walk in the light as He is in the light. That is, we're to walk in the light as He previously demonstrated it. The Scripture says, purify yourselves even as He Himself is pure. That is to say, purify yourselves as He demonstrated purity. And it's extremely practical. What do you do? What is a Christian to do when another Christian sins against him? Well, the Bible says, 
forgiving one another as God, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So that I have a demonstration of how I'm to act when another, when another person sins against me. I am to forgive. It's just like as was demonstrated in the forgiveness to me. I love it. Husbands, how are you to love your wives? Even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, He demonstrated how you're to love your wife in the sacrificial submission of His own death. So that in every habit, in every action, in every attitude, if I'm abiding in Christ, I'm reflecting what He's already demonstrated. Now there is a warning I need to give at this point. He's not talking about imitating Jesus. Now, a few years ago, Charles Shelton wrote that book called In His Steps, and we got the idea from that book. It's probably, it is the greatest, uh, sold more copies than any other book except the Bible. In this book, he said, what you do is you find out what Jesus did and you imitate that. That is not what John's talking about. You couldn't imitate Jesus if you tried. You're not equipped to. Now you say that so you'll understand it. You're not to imitate what Jesus did. You're not equipped to do that. It'd be like a little crippled boy saying, I'm going to play like a big league baseball player. You could give him an E for effort, but he'd still fail in attainment because he's not equipped to do that. Well, then how do you be a moment-by-moment -moment reflection of Jesus? Well, back to the claim, you abide in Christ. Now listen carefully. The way you moment-by-moment -moment reflect Him is by abiding in Him. The branch gets its life and bears its fruit by abiding in the vine. Now, what am I talking about? Listen. If you have a, an intimate, sustained, interactive relationship with the Savior who is loving, you will be loving. Because you become like the significant other in your life. And you reflect that person or that principle with which you most intimately relate. It's not a matter of working in order to attain. It's a matter of effort in order to reveal so that I, my effort is in abiding in Christ so that through that sustained, habitual, intimate interaction with the Savior who is gracious, I become gracious. With the Savior who is patient, I become patient. Now here's the big question. How do you, how is it that you abide in Him? Now watch this. I can tell some of you are, are so interested, some of you are not. Get with it. Watch this. How do you abide in Him? Well, it crescendos. You abide in Him when you start keeping His commandments. 
Now there's some of us in this room this morning who are living today in direct disobedience to a specific command of God and you know that, you know it. And you're not bringing your life in line with a, a known commandment of the Lord. And until you do that, you can't go beyond that. So that you begin to keep His commandments and you begin to become obedient to every known will of God. And then you begin to move beyond that to do those things which please Him. It's not enough just to do what He wants. I want to do everything that pleases Him. And that becomes a part. And all of a sudden, you are beginning to abide in Him. And as you abide in Him, you begin to reflect Him. It becomes like second nature. When I first moved to Durant, um, Coach Dyer came up to me and bless his heart, a sweet friend. He said, do you play tennis? I said, no, I don't play tennis. Under my breath, I was singing. I I'm, I'm just not, I don't love it, I don't like it. So he wanted to teach me how to play tennis. He loves the game and he wanted to teach me how. He was very, boy, he, he was very active and he, so I, I said, okay, I will. I'll, learn. I'll, I'll, I'll let you teach me. So we get up real early. And we go out to, uh, out here to the uh, tennis courts, out here at uh, Carl Albert Park. And first two or three times, well, he taught me footwork. And he'd running me all over that court. <laughs> footwork, backwards and forwards. I was running backwards one time, fell down. <laughs> trying, to, trying to get my footwork. And he taught me what to do with a backhand. He said, now you take this racket, and here's the ball start. He talked, is it called racket preparation there? Greg, you're a big tennis buff. You, get, you, you twist the racket in your hand, and you, at the same time, you get prepared to hit that ball, get it back. Well, about two or three lessons after that, well, we started the, we started the process. He'd lob them across, and I'd start after it. I'm thinking in my mind, turn that racket, with a hand, take that foot, put this foot here, and, and all of a sudden the ball be passed. You know, while, while, I was, while I was thinking about what I'm supposed to do, the ball will be passed. Now, before I learned how to play tennis, Coach Dyer quit. I mean, he quit. <laughs> he, he gave up. All right. But, and I, but I, I think that it takes more than four or five lessons to learn that. And I, I think the way it works is that if you, if you do it there and you sustain that, that all of a sudden it becomes second nature. And when that ball comes across, those pros hit that ball across 100 miles an hour, they're moving, it's second nature, just reflex. They're there twisting that racket, they're moving that foot, they're preparing, zoom, that ball comes back over the net. And they never even think about it. It's reflex. Now, in a like manner, that person who begins to keep the command of God. And he begins to develop that lifestyle that does those things that please him. And he maintains that sustained interaction, intimate interaction with the Lord in prayer and devotion and Bible study. All of a sudden, he becomes, I'm not being sacrilegious, he becomes what Martin Luther called Another Jesus. Another Jesus. Now there's some of you this morning who do not know the Lord. 
And the only way you can ever know the Lord is to turn from your sin where you have excluded Him in your life and by faith place your trust in Him. Would you come to know the Lord this morning? He's not a policy to, ad- to which you must adhere. He's not, a, he's not a creed that you must accept. He is a person you must trust and follow. Would you come this morning, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And some of you might need to say this morning, I need to take those steps of obedience. I have in my own mind right now those things that I, where I have not been obedient. I repent of that. And I correct that. I want to abide in Him that I might be indeed what I claim to be. Would you pray with me? Our Father, may these moments of invitation be such that would please You as we respond for Jesus' sake. There are three invitations. Come to Christ in faith. Come and place your life in our church in obedience to Him. Rededication of your life to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.